Thank y'all so much. Great singing this morning. It's great to be with y'all. Everybody doing well? All right. Uh, Floodwaters didn't quite get to the doorstep, but probably came pretty close. Um, it's great to be with you. So we are in a, in a series looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. And today I want to begin with a little history lesson uh, by starting out with the year 70 A.D. We've got a little slide here that shows you some timeline. The year 70 A.D. A.D. means Anno Domini. It's Latin and it means the year of our Lord, the year Anno of our Lord Domini. And so in the year 70 A.D., if you were a Jewish person, not a good year for you. Um, and four years earlier, in 66 A.D., uh, the Jewish people had kicked the Roman occupying force out of the nation of Israel. So Rome had been in Israel for over 100 or so years, and the Jews finally got rid of them, and they became masters of their own uh, land, their own territory. And so you would think, okay, well, that's really great. Woohoo, good for them. But, you know, the Roman army is, or Roman uh, empire is not going to allow that to stand because if the Jews do this, then other areas uh, other might become hotspots and they would want to be emboldened and do the same. So Rome basically decided they're going to lower the hammer on Israel. Uh, to put this Jewish revolt down, the, they first sent General Vespasian. He was the primo commander, if you would, of the Roman legions. And so they sent him to go put down this Jewish revolt. Um, but all of a sudden, uh, civil war broke out in Rome. And so Vespasian was recalled back to Rome along with his army. Two years later, in 69 AD, General Vespasian ends up becoming the, anointed the new emperor of Rome, of the Roman Empire. And so he sent his son, a fellow named Titus, in 70 AD, at the beginning of the year, uh, to go and put down this Jewish revolt. Uh, I've got a map for you here. This map shows um, where Titus went. So he traveled through Asia Minor and then headed around the northeastern corner of Asia Minor and down southward toward Israel. Eventually, he would encircle the city of Jerusalem. I got a couple of paintings for you here. These artists are attempting to illustrate the Titus's siege of Jerusalem and the subsequent destruction of the city and of the temple. The first painting is by David Roberts. It dates back, oil on canvas, dates back to 1850. Um, and this depicts, it's called the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so you can, so I'll talk about it here in just a second, but you can see some of what he's trying to depict. And then the second painting is by a uh, fellow by the name of Fres Fren or Francesco, I don't just speak Italian, Francesco Hayes, uh, dating back, oil on canvas dating back to 1870. And uh, so that one's entitled The Destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. And so he's depicting some of uh, what took place there in 70 AD. If we flip back to the first painting, the one that has a really wide shot, uh, back from, the, um, from, Israel, from Jerusalem, you can see there in the foreground of the painting, there's a little guy, little character, uh, and that's Titus. He's trying to depict Titus, standing, commanding the Roman legions as they are, um, have laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And the, uh, there are people streaming out of the city, uh, you can see there. And so the Romans, I mean, the Jewish people thought, well, our walls are impregnable, but they, they weren't. Uh, Titus laid siege to the city in April of 80, or 70 AD, and the city would fall four months later in late August of 70 AD. Um, again, Roberts paints Titus there in the forefront, and in the background you can see Jerusalem on fire. We learn from the historian Josephus, who is there eyewitnessing the event, right? So here's a historian. He's writing about the literal event that he was there to see, not secondhand information, but literally firsthand information. Um, and he writes about how Titus would capture people that were trying to scurry out of the city and they would crucify them on the walls of the city. He also learned from Josephus that over a million Jews sought refuge inside of the city during this time because the Roman army had come into the land of Israel. People flooded to Jerusalem to try and escape or to find safe harbor. Titus, uh, Josephus tells, says that 
Um, Titus slaughtered just about everybody. He left 97,000 Jews alive out of the over 1 million that were inside of the city of Jerusalem at the time. I got a couple of quotes from Josephus here. The first one describes the quantity of killing in Jerusalem. He writes, and I quote, The Romans ran everyone through with their swords, whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes or the roads within the city with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. There was just blood on blood on blood. I think over a million people slain. The second quote describes the severity of the famine that occurred. You got over a million people inside the city. Resources are going to run out really quickly, and they did. And so he describes the famine. He says, when the soldiers were come to the houses to plunder them, they found inside of the houses entire families of dead men. And the upper rooms of these houses were full of dead corpses that is such as died by the famine. They were just piling people on people on people after they had died. Then they stood in horror at the sight. Think about this. These are the same soldiers who had just run through thousands upon thousands and upon thousands of people with their sword. And when they got to the houses, it was of such disgust that they wouldn't even walk in. It says that they left the homes without touching anything. What's the point of all this? What does it have to do with our study of the parables? Well, today we come to a section in Matthew's gospel where Jesus offers a litany of parables that scholars call the parables of judgment or the judgment parables. I've got a slide for you here. This shows you all the parables that we're going to um, investigate or we're going to take a look at over the coming weeks. Jesus is pronouncing through these parables the judgment of God against the Jewish people for their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Now, when I say that, let's qualify that statement because there were many Jewish people who actually came to faith in Christ in the first century. And we want to make sure that we also isolate this statement to first century Jewish people. These were the ones that stood at Jesus' crucifixion and said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Well, okay then. And so this is what happened. Uh, so there are many who actually came to faith in Christ, but the vast majority of first century Jewish people did not. And Jesus is telling the Jewish people through these parables, the judgment of God is going to come upon them for their rejection of the Messiah. Jesus even gives them a time frame of when they can expect this judgment to happen. He says, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34, truly I say to you, I'm not lying here, this generation, that's 40 years, will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, within the sound of my voice, within 40 years of me saying this, you can expect this horrific judgment of God to come upon you. And if you read through Matthew chapter 24, you can read the details of all the stuff that these guys are trying to paint. My plan today is for us to take a look at the first of the two parables of judgment that Jesus gives. And then over the coming weeks, we'll consider more of these. We'll also digest more of the details of that 70 AD event. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over to Matthew chapter 21. Um, or if you want to follow along with us on the screen, on your phone, whatever, that's fine. Any of those work. We're going to read verses 43 through 46. These are, this is the tail end of Jesus having a conversation with some of the Jewish rulers. And he's pronouncing, after he gives them a couple of parables, some teaching, he pronounces judgment on them. Let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's word together. Matthew chapter 21, verses 43 through 46. Here we go. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You may be seated. 
All right, we're going to come back to those verses in just a bit. Remember, that kind of captures the tail end or the conclusion of this encounter that Jesus has with these Jewish leaders. So we'll come back to that in just a little bit. All these parables, they're not told in isolation, right? Jesus doesn't just say, I'm going to tell you a parable today. No, there's some question that's raised or some event that takes place, some occasion that prompts Jesus to want to share these parables. So we want to go back and consider that first. Jump back with me to Matthew chapter 21. I know I'm talking fast today, but you don't realize I got lots of pages to get through, right? So Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23 begins this interaction of Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Here we go, verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests are those important, those are the important priests, and the elders of the people, that's the political class, came to Jesus as he was teaching. So he's standing there, he's inside the temple gates. This is the last week, I want to say this is the last week of Jesus' life because he obviously lived on, but it's the week up to, leading up to um, his crucifixion. It's the week of his crucifixion. And so he's there, he's teaching in the temple. And so as he was teaching, that means these guys came in and interrupted him. Thanks a whole lot. Um, and so they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, I, I don't know how that hits you, but it didn't sound to me like a question. <laughs> More of an accusation, if you would. So they don't believe that Jesus has the authority to do what he's been doing. They don't believe that Jesus has the authority to say what he's been saying. You say, well, what's he been doing? What's he been saying? What's got these guys all in a fuss? Well, two, sun, two days before, on Sunday, Jesus had ridden into town on the back of a donkey. He had done so because Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says that the Messiah would ride into town on the back of a donkey. So he's fulfilling scripture. And when Jesus comes into town on what we call Palm Sunday, the people had palm branches, and they were waving the palm branches. They took their coats off. They laid them on the ground as Jesus rode by. All of this, and they were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of this to try and, they're welcoming the royal, right? They're welcoming the king into Jerusalem. They were anticipating that Jesus was going to come in and he was going to become the new king of the Jews. And that's what they're expecting. So for Jesus' first stop, once he gets into town, he goes inside the city. He went inside the temple complex itself. And when he walked in, he saw all these money changers there. And the money changers had scales. And they put some of your money, and they put some of the weights, and the weights were dishonest. And so these guys were stealing from the Jewish people. And they were doing it inside the church. And Jesus is, he's not going to stand for this. You can do your, your dishonesty out there. He doesn't like it there, but we're definitely not going to do it in here in God's house. And so he goes in and he turns over the tables and he runs the money changers out of the temple complex. Well, that got their attention, right? And so the chief priests and the elders of the people, uh, these are the men who had formed the Jewish high council called the Sanhedrin. And so these fellows on Tuesday, they hear that Jesus has come back to the temple and that he's teaching in the temple courtyard. And so they gather themselves. They come down from their high, lofty offices. And they all kind of gather together. We're going to meet at 10 o'clock, right? We're going to go down there. And so they go down together and they, to confront Jesus. They say, verse 23, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You didn't come ask us whether or not these tables ought to be turned over, the money changers ought to be run out of the temple. Nobody, nobody, nobody ran this by us. Who gave you this authority? Verse 24, Jesus responded, okay, how about I ask you all a question? He says, if you'll tell me the answer to my question, then I'll answer yours. Deal? Deal. Verse 35, or 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? In other words, by whose authority was John out 
baptizing and preaching and teaching and saying the things that he said and calling people to repentance. Where did he get that message from? Was that just something that came out of John's brain? Or was it from heaven? Did God give him the task? Was he on a God-appointed errand? Or was he just doing that out of his own displeasure with the way things were? Was it from heaven, from God, or was it from man? Was he a messenger sent from God or not? You tell me. Uh, It says middle of verse 25, these doctors of the law... Um, we'll huddle up, we'll make sure that whatever we respond with, that everybody's in agreement about it, says that they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, here's their rationale, if we say from heaven, if we say that John the Baptist was out there preaching and doing what he was doing because God had put him on the, up to it because he was from heaven, his message was from heaven, then we are admitting, we are validating what John had to say. And we all know that John said, this guy is Messiah. And so we can't, ha- we can't say John was on a heavenly errand because then we validated that Jesus is Messiah. Um, if we say that he's from heaven, then Jesus will say to us, well, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe what he said about who I am? Verse 26, but if we say from man, you know, John was just out there doing his best preaching against the displeasure of, or what his displeasure of what he sees. If that's all he was doing, then the people who hold that John was a prophet, most of these people here, um, they're going to come after us, right? So we're afraid of the crowd. We're afraid of causing a big stir here. And Jesus has got these guys between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Option A is if they say it was from heaven, then they're admitting Jesus is Messiah. Option B is if they admit that, then they're going to have a riot on their hands. So why, what do they do? Well, they do what all good bureaucrats do. They basically punt. And they say, verse 27, we don't know. So Jesus responds, that's what I thought. And so, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, notice in their response that these Jewish leaders are unwilling to even entertain the idea of Jesus' true identity, that he is Messiah. He's the one that God had sent to rescue his people from their sins. What follows are three parables that are told back, literally back to back to back, that pronounce judgment on these religious leaders for their rejection of the Lord Jesus. So that's the context. That is the conversation that prompts Jesus to share these parables. And again, these are judgment parables. Parables designed to point out the unbelief of these Jewish leaders. The first is the parable of the two sons. Let's take a look at it. Verse 28. When Jesus, or Jesus says to the chief priests and the elders, what do you think? In other words, tell me what you think about this story. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. He gives the son an order. In other words, verse 29, son number one answered back, "Eh, I'm not interested. I'm not going to go. Not going out in the vineyard, not going to work today. I got other things to do. He says no. But after thinking about it for a while, son number two changed his mind and went. That is, he went out into the vineyard, did as his dad had asked him to do. Verse 30, son number two. The father went to the other son and said the same thing. Son, go work in my vineyard. And this son answered saying, sure, okay, I'll go, sir. Just sir, whatever you ask, right? Lip service. But he didn't actually go. He never did. Now you tell me, Jesus says to the guys, verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? In other words, which of those two sons was obedient? The one that at first said, not doing it, but then went. Or the one that said, sure, I'll go, but never did. 
which of the two did the will of his father? The men said, verse, I mean, this is obvious, right? These are doctors of the law. These are the chief priests. These are the elders. Surely y'all can handle this question. And so they do. They respond. The first one did. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, I'm not lying. Uh, what difference does this make to y'all's life? We're going to get to that question in a little bit. But that's Jesus asking the question there. Well, it means that tax collectors, that's what it means to these guys that he's talking to. It means that tax collectors, like Matthew sitting here next to me, Tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes, people like Mary Magdalene, you know, she used to be, uh, people that are considered the bottom of society, these folks will go and are even already going into the kingdom of God before you all, ahead of you all. They've accepted me. They've embraced me. End of verse 32. And even when you saw this happen, I mean, y'all have known that Matthew has been part of my disciples. Y'all know that Mary Magdalene has been one of our close followers and one of our close advocates y'all saw the differences in their lives you saw how things were turned around in their lives even when you saw that you did not afterward change your minds and believe the testimony of john the baptist you've rejected his testimony and all of this evidence matthew mary magdalene miracles that are performed my teaching all of this evidence has not turned you all toward me You've not been willing to admit or even entertain that I am the Christ. Could Jesus be any more blunt? Hope not. I didn't think he, I thought he was pretty blunt, right? I thought he was really laying it out there. In the past, he's been a little bit more veiled in his teaching. In the past, he's been a little bit more guarded in some of the things that he was saying. He's trying to, you know bring people on board through telling them about blessed are you who are poor in spirit blessed are you who mourn and he gives them all sorts of teachings and things that draw their hearts toward him but now he's coming to a place of saying hey look gang gloves are off and this is the reality of what we're facing you don't follow me judgment is coming choose this day whom you'll serve parable number two the parable of the wicked tenants everybody doing okay so far a lot of info already. So let's keep it going. We're, we're almost getting there. We're almost there. Let's take a look at it. Parable number two, the parable of the wicked tenants, verse 33. Hear another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house. In this parable, God is represented by the master. In this parable, the nation of Israel is represented by the vineyard. A vineyard was just a stock metaphor, if you would, for the nation of Israel, been used by, by Bible writers for, for years, centuries. Um, verse 33, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a watchtower, and then leased out the vineyard to tenants. So basically, the master of the house does all the things that you would need to do in order to have a functional and prosperous vineyard. Right? He, he builds a fence around the outside of this thing. That's going to keep the wild dogs out. That's going to keep the, the deer out from eating all of his product. And then he um, builds a watchtower and literally has somebody who's manning that day and night. And so they're keeping an eye on things, especially as the harvest is coming in. Don't want anybody sneaking into his vineyard, stealing all of his crop. Um, he puts a wine press in the middle of this vineyard, so he doesn't need to outsource that particular part of the um, production. And so he does all the things that's needed. He, hires, he has some tenants that are going to literally work there. For the, they'll get housing, and then they'll work and keep the, keep the land up, make sure the, the product comes in. And at the end of verse 33, it says he went into the country, or went into another country. Now what follows is that the master sends servants back to the vineyard when it's harvest time. So he's looking to collect on his investment. Okay, 
But when the servants arrive, they're mistreated. He says in verse 35 that when the tenants took his servants, uh, they beat one of them, killed one, and stoned another. That's kind of a pretty strange, sinister twist here, Jesus, to your story. I mean, here's these guys that um, the master sends to go collect on his investment, and when they arrive, the tenants who are running the vineyard are you know, reject these folks and kick them out of the vineyard, kill one even, uh, mistreat them badly. The master then, verse 36, sent other servants more than the first time, and the tenants treat the second round of servants the same way. Finally, verse 37, the master sent his son, Jesus, saying, well, certainly they're going to respect my son, my goodness. Verse 38, but, verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, skip to 39, they took the son, threw him out, and killed him. What's Jesus doing here? He's foretelling what the ruling class is going to do to him in just a couple of days. It's Tuesday. He'll be on the cross Friday morning. Jesus is also reminding these Jews that their actions are in step with how the ruling class has treated prophets that God has sent to the nation of Israel through the centuries. For example, got a slide for you here. For example, how about God sending Jeremiah to go tell the people of Israel to stop chasing after false idols and to get their lives right? Well, they didn't listen. In fact, they got so tired of hearing from Jeremiah that they threw him in a well and left him for dead. Elijah cried out against Baal worship and called out the king's wife. And he re the result was Elijah was chased across the desert by the queen's chariots, and he was forced into hiding. Isaiah was, foretelling, uh, was telling the truth, and he was sawn in two, William Wallace style, at the order of King Manasseh. Ezekiel was stoned to death by the leader of the Jews in captivity. The prophet Habakkuk was stoned to death by an angry mob. Zechariah was slain in the house of the Lord by Joash, king of Judah. And then most recently in Jesus' day, for telling the truth, John the Baptist had his head cut off. There's a pattern here, folks. God sending his servants to his people. And over and over again, rather than listening to the servants, rather than listening to the prophets, rather than repenting of their sins and coming on board with what God wants to see, they stoned them. They killed them. They ran them out of town. Now, as Jesus, Jesus is still in the story, though, he's still covering the details of the story, but I imagine these guys, as they're hearing this, and things are beginning to pop in their brains. They're beginning to think, hmm, I wonder if he's pointing the finger at us. And Jesus asked them, verse 40, when, there, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, that is when God returns, what, would, what will he do with those tenants? Verse 41, they responded, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Remember, this is not Jesus saying this. He's got the guys that are interacting with him saying this. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out or rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Again, part of what's fascinating is that Jesus puts in the mouths of his accusers what will be their punishment. Isn't that neat? He's, they say God will put those wretches to a miserable death. Jesus in response, verse 43, just a couple more verses here. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Last verse, verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone, Jesus had just said that he was the cornerstone, the one who falls on this stone, who falls on me, 
will um, be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, the stone, Jesus, will crush him. So Jesus pronounces judgment on the Jewish religious leaders for their rejection of him as Messiah. Parables number one and two. All right, well, that is our tri- well, that's really cheerful, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so that's our parables for today. That's our treatment of this text for today, which means it's time for us to stop and ask that question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? So, you know, it sounds like Jesus was talking to those religious leaders. Sounds like he, you know, they got what they were going to get in 70 AD. What does this have to do with me? Well, it's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I want to circle back to those quotes made by Josephus. Remember, Josephus was there. He was outside of the city with Titus's army, watching all of this take place, watching the siege of Jerusalem take place. Um, He eyewitnessed the event. And Josephus writes, When the Roman soldiers were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. And then the second quote, The Romans ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed, in other words, there was no mercy, and obstructed the very lanes or roads within the city with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood, end of quote. A couple of observations. When Jesus told these guys, Matthew 21 and verse 44, back to that verse, when he told them, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And just the same, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Again, Jesus pronounced that judgment upon these religious leaders. He was pronouncing judgment upon them. God, this is what's going to happen in your rejection of me. I doubt that many of them in that moment took him seriously. Right? I'm sure there was just a lot of rolling of the eyes. and <laughs> Can you believe he did that? Right? And turning to one another. Because you know, that's what we do when we're wrong. We go find other people to make us feel better about ourselves rather than dealing with the truth. And so this, that's what they do. They just roll their eyes, and they're like, ah, forget about it. That guy's just crazy. Just another crazy person out there talking about God's judgment. Well, I am hope from what we've discovered in the events of 70 AD that when God says judgment is coming, the prudent thing for us to do is to heed his warning. At the end of the book of Revelation, John has a vision of God's future judgment of the human race. The first part of Revelation 20 covers events that will take place in the lead-up to this final judgment. He writes Revelation 20 and verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were. And that devil and the false prophets will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, now that Satan's been dealt with, John fast moves forward to, okay, your life and mine, to the human race. And he says, beginning at verse 11, uh, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, deceased, that is, deceased human beings, great and small, the famous and the not-so-famous, standing before the throne of God, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the Lamb's Book of Life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, what should we do with that? Should we roll our eyes? Hey, man, can you believe, he, can you believe that guy said that? I mean, that's crazy. Crazy, just another crazy, you know, lunatic Christian radical out there talking about God's judgment one day. Is that what we should do with that? Or should we take Jesus seriously? 
Should we heed his words of warning? A foolish man ignores it. A wise and prudent man heeds that warning. The question is, how do I make sure that I don't end up inside the city walls of Jerusalem, so to speak, when that end time comes? How do I make sure that when I stand before the judgment throne of God that I am safe, that I am secure, that I need not fear God's wrath and God's judgment? Let's keep reading. John writes Revelation 20 and verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown along with the devil into the lake of fire. Friends, John declares that the way to avoid the judgment and the wrath of God, which is coming, the way to avoid it is to make sure that your name, my name, is written in the Lamb's book of life. You say, well then... How do I get my name in that book, right? I want to get my name in there. Paul makes it very plain. Romans 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, not just in your head, the devil believes this, but believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, when somebody comes forward for baptism, we don't just get wet. Right? We don't just dunk them down in the water. Before they go into the water, we have to make the good confession of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. And friends, that confession of faith is honoring what Paul just said for us to do here in Romans 10 and verse 9. That's why Paul couples with confession the statement that you have to believe this in your heart. It's not just some sort of head knowledge. Okay, yeah, I believe Jesus was a real historical figure. I might even believe that he resurrected from the dead, but we're actually looking to what Jesus did on the cross, appropriating to my life, trusting in my eternal state where I'm going to land on the other side of this life in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. I'm not trusting in my good works. I'm not trusting in some other faith system. I'm trusting in Jesus. You know, just a couple of days ago, I was visiting with a family whose mother was dying. While I was there, I read portions of John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says things like, in my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you. He says things like, I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. And then he says, John 14 and verse 6, these words. See if they're familiar. I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As I stood there at the foot of the bed, matriarch of the family, her body, just weakened, very weakened state. Literally, she passed, I mentioned it earlier, she passed, um, I mentioned earlier the Sunday school class, she passed later Friday night in just a weakened state. As I was reading through that passage of Scripture, as I was reading through those words, John 14 and verse 6, I remember looking up from the text, and I could see her mouthing the words along with me. Friends, that is a confession of faith. That is believing in our heart that, Mom, what I'm trusting for, 
to wake me up on the other side of this is the Lord Jesus and the blood that he shed on the cross. You know, I've told you before the occasion of my own salvation. I was eight years old. I knelt down with my dad to receive Christ as my Savior. But earlier that same evening, I had been to church, and we watched this movie about how Jesus was going to return, the judgments of God were going to follow. And I'll be quite honest with you, I was scared. Woo, eight years old, I was scared. It scared me so badly that it triggered me to want to avail myself of saving faith. It scared me so badly that I wanted to take steps of self-preservation, right? At eight years old, I got it. Okay, I need something to keep me out of that hellfire. I need to be able to get into heaven, and I'm looking to Jesus to be the way that I'm going to get there. Since that time, Jesus has become so much more to me than fire insurance. Nevertheless, my awareness of the need for fire insurance was the catalyst for me to come to saving faith in Christ. You know, some folks become followers of Christ because like Mary Magdalene, their lives are so broken and it's such a mess that they come to Jesus in desperation saying, Jesus, can you please help me? Can you please put me back together and heal this mess that is my life? Others like Matthew, the tax collector, have acquired everything that the world has to offer. And, and they've, they've, they've taken in and drunk everything that the world would present to them and they find themselves still wanting. They've got that empty hole on the inside of them, that God-shaped hole. And so they come to Jesus to fill them in a place where the world just cannot. But others still, like me, at the age of eight, come to Jesus looking for fire insurance. Friends, it is a legitimate reason to come to jesus he was trying to convince these i mean he hey look gang, we're down to the end here right i'm not going to be here with you much longer and jesus was sharing with them about judgment of god that was coming and he's trying to use that information to try and draw their hearts to break their hearts to accept him sometimes friends it takes god seeing god's judgment and being exposed to the reality of god's judgment to get the attention of some that's what Jesus is doing in the temple courts with these guys. He is laying it out there, taking the gloves off, plain as day. Hey, friends, I, I beg you, I'm pleading with you to receive me as Messiah. Because the, option is, uh, the other option is unthinkable. And sometimes, again, that's what it takes to get our attention. Do you suppose that some of the people in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 that gave their lives to Jesus Christ when Peter was standing on the day of Pentecost and he was preaching to the people and declaring them about Jesus' death and about his blood that was shed for them and said, and you crucified the Messiah. Do you think that some of the people that responded on that day of Pentecost and were baptized in the faith were some of those religious leaders that had encountered Jesus in the temple? I think there were. They remember that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, how darkness covered the whole face of the earth for three hours. And they remember at the moment of Jesus' death that the, that the veil inside the temple was torn in two. And all of this just brought them to their knees, looking for answers. Again, sometimes that's what it takes, stern warnings to get our attention. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Two statements and I'm done. Statement number one, today is the day of salvation. If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, friends, make today that day. Today is the day of salvation. Wait no longer. Statement number two, and this one's directed at all the moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, even if you babysit a little one. Statement number two, parents with so much at stake, we need to make sure that we avail ourselves of every opportunity for our kids to hear the truth about Jesus. And to be, have every opportunity to respond to him 
in faith. There is too much at stake. Would you agree? Friends, the alternative of us falling asleep at the wheel is unthinkable. Let's pray. Most gracious God, hearing your truth today, spoken into our ears, perhaps, Lord, jerking a knot in some of us, Lord, where it needed to be done. Lord God, may we humble ourselves before you. As parents, may we humble ourselves before you. Make sure our priorities are lined up to give our children every opportunity to avail themselves of the truth of the gospel. Lord, if there be any here today who say, you know what? I heard that, and I'm scared. Lord Jesus, they can leave this place today with absent fear, absent doubt, by simply turning to you, availing themselves of the blood that Jesus shed on their cross, shed on the cross for them, and appropriating that life, turning to you, asking you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, in these quiet moments of communion, may we be courageous enough, bold enough to pray to receive you as our Lord and our Savior. Lord, as we come around this table, we're so thankful for your great love for us. We're thankful for your shed blood, for your broken body, symbols of your great love. Speak to us, work in our hearts, we pray. We give you this time in Christ's holy name. Amen.